This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. In October, we're celebrating a long-standing association between the garden, the natural and botanical worlds, and arts. In so doing, each week in Arttober, we're hearing from artists about their botanical journeys, processes, and purpose. This week, the third in our four-part series focused on botanical artistry, we meet Julia Lucy, whose aquatint etchings focus on native flora and fauna, predominantly of the West. The original inspiration for her art came from Julia's years spent backpacking and working in Wyoming's Teton Mountains. But in the last eight years, her work has evolved to include the native flora and fauna of her home in Northern California. As an artist-in-residence at Cala Art Institute, Julia has focused on traditional etching techniques and aquatint to create images dealing with the evolving issues of wildlife, its dissolution, and the attempt by many to direct its path. She exhibits her work throughout the United States. She joins us from the studios of Northern California Public Media in Rohnert Park. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. The first thing I'd like to do is have you describe your current work to listeners in as visual a way as you can so they get a sense of its signature style and colors and content matter, Julia. I, I primarily work in etching, which is it's a 500-year-old printmaking process. And what I do is I etch large sheets of copper and usually work on one specific species of a local plant that I've seen kind of in my neighborhood or on a hike. I'll etch the plate, and then you can only print one single color per plate. I print on a really thin Japanese paper. Then after that, I cut up the pieces and I collage them together. Um, And so I kind of am creating my own landscape by uh, piecing together each plant species uh, to create one scene. Because I am familiar with your work, I can see it. I want you to describe as well, when you you have a finished print Mm -hmm. with its full narrative in place that you're working on, about how many etchings have you completed How many layers of color and cut-out collage are included in in your average print, Julia? Well, it varies. So it it takes a really long time to etch a plate uh, on the size and scale I'm doing them. You know, I've etched plates that are 24 by 30, and it takes, you know, three weeks to etch a plate that size. So, uh, you know, it's been over the course of actually several years that I've accumulated as many plates of different plants uh, that I have now. So some of my um, collages, you know, we might use uh, 10 different plants. I think I'm working on a really large uh, collage right now that I think I probably have like 30 different mm-hmm. plates uh, used for it and, and hand cut and put together that way. Uh, so it's a little more complex and uh, and definitely has to be a little bit more thought out. Uh, it's things I see in my backyard. So I am kind of recreating um, you know, kind of my local Marin County uh, plant species and kind of making making them work uh, in a visually aesthetic way. Yeah. Describe some of the earliest influences that kind of brought you on this path that was so engaged with the plants and wildlife around you. 
it's kind of funny because I can't really put a finger on it like as a kid because I, I mean, I've been drawing animals for as long as I can remember, which was actually actually kind of problematic in art school. But I've always done animals and plants. And I grew up mostly in cities. My parents don't garden. For some reason, my sister actually, she's a flower. She grows flowers and, uh, and sells them at farmer's markets. And I ended up obsessed with flowers too. So there's, some, I don't know if it's genetic or if, or, or if something else. I remember always drawing plants and animals as a kid. In high school, I had a really great English teacher, Mr. Searles, and he had us reading Doug Peacock's Grizzly Years and um, Gretel Ehrlich and all of these nature writers. And I maybe, maybe something in there clicked that I didn't know it was clicking at the time, but that led me to Gary Snyder and Wendell Berry. And then I just kind of you know, the idea of a sense of place, maybe it's the fact that I did move from town to town as a kid. Maybe maybe I became really interested in in what is place and how do I how do you belong to a place? And, and maybe it is knowing what grows around you and how it interacts and how it changes with the seasons and and just what you see. So I, I don't know. Like, I can't really put my finger on it. In college, I did a lot of backpacking. I worked at guest ranches just so I could be in Wyoming, uh, just so I could like you know be in the Tetons. I want to get a job, I'll waitress and do housekeeping at a guest ranch, uh, just to just to be in that environment. I think there's something about backpacking. You're kind of forgetting all of these pressures on the modern world. You go out and all the mountain flowers are blooming, and there's just something peaceful about it and 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 it relieves your stress and you're just you don't care about your demands you don't care about what people think of you you don't care about you know just daily pressures mm-hmm. you forget it mm-hmm. and 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 I think maybe maybe I associate flowers and animals with kind of an escapist feeling of it's just a good feeling yeah, yeah. and so you you finish high school and you decide mm-hmm. to go to art school yeah. Talk, talk about that experience and how it formed you into doing the specific kind of art that you are doing now. What's funny is in high school, I was really into ceramics. And I think maybe it was the meditative aspect of it. Um, Miss Okula was my um, art teacher, who, and she just kind of let me just go for it and um, do a lot of ceramics. And what's funny is when I went to college, I couldn't get into a ceramics class as a freshman. And I took a printmaking class, and it just stuck. Yeah. And and I think um, part of it is that I'm a little obsessive with detail. And in a lot of other mediums, it's like in painting and drawing, it's like you get you get one, and and then you're done, and you mess it up, and it's over. But with printmaking, you can be really detailed and really um, and spend a really long time with something, and then you can make tons of them. So it's like when I etch a plant. I can I can make multiples of them. I can spend a really long time, two or three weeks, making this one plant, but but then I can print thirty of them. I, I actually think art school in some ways it hurt my growth as an artist and, and in other ways I just in terms of my self confidence, I think, you know, I was at art school in the San Francisco Art Institute, which was amazing. My printmaking classes were phenomenal, but it is a very conceptual based kind of experimental exploring more philosophical ideas. Not to say that my work isn't academic or challenging, but there is something about someone who's throwing up something very politically powerful and you're putting up plants and animals. A lot of people just see it as not weak, but not not challenging yourself. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. even though it's something that it's just natural for me, I felt like, you know, I, I went through a phase where I thought, okay, well, I'm going to show environmental destruction and I'm going to make something gritty and, and try to explain 
my love for the for flowers this way and show like this is what we shouldn't do to it. But it, it just felt contrived when I was doing that. It just did not I, I, I did not feel comfortable making something that was uncomfortable. I just didn't want to do it. It just yeah. wasn't natural. I mean, that's what you're supposed to be doing in art school. You're supposed to be experimenting and and having people be really critical. You get a thick skin so that you can keep making your work and uh, to some degree not care what people think, yeah. but, but also be able to take criticism and, and think about it and, and put that back into your work and, and to be able to look critically at your own work and say, why am I using that color? Why did I put this over here? And in terms of the composition, it's like that I, I learned that in art school. Timothy Berry, that was my uh, printmaking instructor, and, and he did an aquatint intensive, which is, um, aquatint is just, you know, it's a, it's a part of the etching process that is just one little part, and he did a whole intensive class on it, and I just loved it, so it, it stuck. So describe the aquatint, because the aquatint is really, I think, it, it's a signature aspect of the color palette and, and tonality of the, the colors that you use. Am I right when the, when I say that? Yeah, I mean, that's what I like about aquatint. I mean, it's called aquatint because it looked like watercolor. You know, when you're making an etching, it's a thin piece of copper, and you cover it with like a waxy ground, which is called a hard ground. And the first step, at least that I use, is is I do line etching. So I'll draw, I basically just draw all my line details, my outlines. And then you take that plate and you put it in like a little bath of acid and it bites into the plate, um, just the lines. The only way you can get an image is, is you wipe ink in and it goes into the recessed lines mm-hmm. and you're printing the lines that the, that the acid etched into the plate. With an aquatint, what happens is if I was to just expose my whole plate and put it in a bath of acid and then I put ink on my plate, there'd be nothing for for the ink to hold on to. You would just, when you were inking your plate, you would just wipe all the ink away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I'm doing with an aquatint is I'm covering my plate with a dot pattern. And the way you do that is you use a powdered pine resin. You have to wear a mask because it's, uh, even though it's from a pine tree, uh, it's really fine particulates and so it sticks in your lungs. The powder comes down, you try to create as even a tone of the powder as you can and then you melt it onto the plate and it adheres to the plate and it actually, it's, it's, and it's acid resistant. Um, so what you basically have are little tiny dots mm-hmm. of acid resist all over your plate. It's hard to explain without visuals. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're etching a plate and with an aquatint, what you're doing is you're um, manipulating how deep the acid bites straight up down into the plate. What I kind of like to think about it is if you were looking down on a swimming pool where the stairs are, you can kind of see like the top stair is really light and then the next stair down is a little bit darker. Yeah. And the next stair down is a little darker and then the, the deep part of the pool is really dark. You're kind of doing that with a with an etching plate when you're making an aquatint. So I'm, you know, I paint, I'll use the acid resistant paint and I'll paint my white areas and then I'll put my plate into the acid and I'll let it bite a little bit down. And then I take it out and I'll paint my next gray tone and, and put it back in the acid until I get to black. Um, but what I like about it is that because I'm using a paintbrush to paint each gray level, you kind of get a really painterly feel. Yeah. And then because you, with a single plate, some people, you know, you make etchings, you usually see it within a rectangular matrix and you can only get one color per plate. You put a oil-based ink on it, just like it's like oil paint. You wipe it in with something called tarlatan. It's kind of like cheesecloth. It pushes the ink into your etched lines and then you run it through an etching press and print it. 
but you can only print one color at a time. So some people, you know, they'll make a whole, the whole composition usually is within the plate, and then you do multiple plates to get different color. But I totally took that out of my work. So you never really see the grid of the plate in my work because I cut it all out. I print in multiple colors. So I'll take that same plate and I'll just, you know, print it in a rainbow of colors. I bring it home and cut them up and, and make my compositions with those, with those different colored plants that way. Wow. I just can't, I'm thinking of some of your more complex pieces with different layers of the plants and then the animals. And, and when I'm watching some of your process pieces, you will show where you're, where you're kind of putting the little creatures into a little ecosystem. And, and sometimes they're not little, you know, they're big and they're bears and there's a big moon. And the number of steps involved in each finished piece blows me away, Julia. And the, <laughs> the level of intricate detail and this nuance of color across a piece is just, it's very compelling to me. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, I, thank you. I, it's, I think, well, with etching, the reason why I'm able to do that is because I can get so much detail into the etching, and then it just carries over. It's if I'm taking those same really detailed pieces and chopping them up, it's like I can bring the detail in. I was painting something with that detailed. It would take a really long time, and I, I just, you know, I like being able to get the detail in the plate so that when I can cut them up and put them together, I can move things around and, and make things work. Mm-hmm. So for any one finished piece, you may have four or five or six etchings that you printed and then cut from in order to reassemble them into your finished piece. Is that right? That's right. And then and sometimes I'll take, you know, there's some pieces, some of the images you'll see, I've just taken the same plant and I've printed the same plate, you know, 10 times, and it's that same plant 10 times. Right. Which is, I mean, how you would see it in nature. It's like, oh, right. there's the, you know, there's a lily. Now there's 10 lilies. <laughs> <Yeah>. Now <laughs> we have a colony yeah. of lilies. Yeah, we have a colony of lilies, yeah. So you do the plates in a studio that's not at home. And do you do this full time, Julia? I, I do do this full time, yeah. Okay. And yeah. so at your studio, you have, you must have many, many, many plates at this point in your in your career, can you reuse them? You can. I mean, traditionally, people make etchings. Think of like old woodblock prints from 600 years ago. That's how info, you know the information and yeah. usually used for religious purposes. But way back when it was created, but that's how you make multiples. I can reuse these plates a lot, but they do start to wear down over time. Traditionally, when someone's making a print, they'd make an edition of them. So they might print you know, a hundred of them, 500 of them, or 10 of them, or, you know, you know, whatever right. they feel like, whatever they feel like doing. Um, but I'm, I'm not really editioning that way. So, you know, and usually when someone prints an edition, they all look the same. Whereas mm-hmm. I, I, it, I just, I get bored with that. Like, I just, I want to make new compositions. I want to play with color. I want to see how different colors look together. Um, and I like the ability that if I put together a collage, and I don't like it, I can try it again and, you know, let's adjust the color and let's move this over here. I'll move that up three inches or redo it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So at what point did you develop the process as it stands today where you cut your, your pieces up and then you collage them? After art school, I went, I was a high school teacher for a while. And then when my son was born, my youngest, I went back to, I went back to art. It's been about eight years that I've kind of been making art. And when I look at the work I was making at the beginning, what I was doing is I was making these little tiny plates 
um, and it would be like a tiny plate, same concept. I would do a single, like poppies on one plate. I mean, they were tiny. They were like, you know, one or two inches by one or two inches. Um, you know, poppies on this plate, a little fern on this plate, a deer on this plate. And I would kind of create landscapes that way or a little, little, I, at that point, and I was thinking about ecosystems and kind of building ecosystems is the way I was thinking about it. And then I think I just started getting more confident. And I think I said, you know what, I'm just going to make them bigger. And I thought about, I did for a while, I was doing them, you know, a traditional etching where I was making my whole composition within one plate and it was rectangular with, with the bigger plants and animals. And then I said, I can't make an etching that's, you know, 36 inches by 36 inches. I mean, I could, but it would be pain. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to, if I want to make anything bigger, I wanted to challenge myself to make something bigger. I thought, you know what, why don't I just cut them up? I make a bigger composition that way. Yeah. So about what year was that when you started, you know, in this last eight years, about how long ago did that dimensionality of collaging them together come into play? Well, I I think I first kind of went from, I was, I started collaging, I think maybe three or four years ago. Right now I'm collaging on panel. What I was doing is I was printing like a big plate of cow parsnip and then I would print a coyote and then I would print the cow parsnip again, but in a different color. I would cut the cow parsnip of one color out and put the coyote behind it and then and then make it match up to the print behind it so that it would kind of look like a, a camouflaged coyote hiding in cow parsnip, I guess. Right. <laughs> So I started doing that. I mean, that was probably four years ago. I started doing that. Okay. And then I said, well, I could do this on a bigger level. And I, I still use those plates that I was doing then. So I still use that cow parsnip plate. And that coyote, maybe, because I think I know his and face. I do, yes, yes. <laughs> and, I still, and I still use that coyote. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. In this third in our four-part October series, focused on the many artists inspired by the botanical, we're speaking with Julia Lucy. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Jennifer. In the end of my conversation with Julia, you will hear how she touches at length on a dilemma that Kate Blairstone mentioned in her interview and Obi Kaufman mentioned in his. And it's that age-old dilemma of balance between making a living and making a life between profit or planet first. It is an age-old dilemma, and I know for me that one of the ways I try to balance this in my own actions is to try to put my money where my mouth and values are. I feel very confident that you do the same. In my own work, I try to remember too that as in so much of what is being publicly discussed these days, it's often an issue of refusing to take part in any conversation that is polarized into a binary of either or, and insist and look for the this and that, and for the enough. What is enough in anything and in everything? This special edition of Cultivating Place is airing during North State Public Radio's Fall Membership Drive. I want to thank every one of you who responded so generously to last week's call for support of Cultivating Place. Every donation of support to this program goes to sustain this program and all of the work at North State Public Radio. 
I have always been proud that my work is associated with the community and outreach and education and tenets of public radio, but I've perhaps never been more proud than now. In this often dishearteningly polarized world, my association with my local public radio is grounding. It is orienting to my place in this world at this time. So thank you for your votes of support by listening and your votes of support by donating. The link to make your contribution is in this week's episode post and is newly at the top of every page of cultivatingplace.com. Sustainability is a beautiful concept in our gardens, in our energy outlays, and in our finances. Thank you for helping Cultivating Place grow in both these directions. Now, back to our conversation with Julia Lucy. So then let's get into some of these larger, more complex narrative pieces, because they, first of all, call out to me as a a Californian um, or even just someone from the West, actually, because they're very reminiscent of a look and feel and plant palette that would be could easily be speaking to me of Colorado, uh, where I was born and raised, or it could be uh, the Pacific Northwest, where I lived for six years. So there is this there is this feel of a place. Was that always a part of it, or did that become much more intense in in the last so many years? I think it it has become more intense. I I think what happens, we were living in San Francisco. Um, when I first started making those little tiny etchings where I was kind of making stamps. And and those were all about Jackson Hole and, like, when I was working at guest ranches and when I was backpacking as a, as a high schooler and college kid. And and I think what happened is we moved to Fairfax, which is 20 miles north but is surrounded by open space. And I think I just started trying to learn. Someone actually said to me at, at, a, at a show and talking about how my work was about Wyoming, and they were like, have you ever looked around here? <laughs> You know, like, what are you create? Why are you escaping to this faraway place when where you live is so beautiful? And and I think that is when I started saying, okay, I moved to Fairfax and I started, I, we have a dog who needs a lot of exercise. And I started going on more hikes. And I did start to notice things that most people who grow up in the same place notice all the time. You know, these are the flowers that come up in January. These come up in, you know, the poppies start coming up in March and April and mm-hmm. irises. And I just started noticing those. And then I thought, you know what, this is a good way for me to learn my own local plant ecology. And, and yeah. I think where it's going is that now I'm starting to see like this interplay of animals and, and, and seeing mm-hmm. seasonal patterns. It's kind of creating its own narrative. And it makes me think of fables, and I am kind of creating these fables. I just made a panel of the bear and the bees, which is a written fable, which I think has a good, for today, I think has a good uh, moral story of, you know, the big strong bear who tries to attack the little bee for his honey, and then, you know, all the little guys come out and say, no, you can't have our honey. Right. It's a gorgeous one. So I, I, wanna, I want to give a little bit more of visual for, for listeners, because in this particular one, which is very indicative of your work, it's profile format rectangle and the whole foreground are beautiful yellow lilies in full bloom and the bear is kind of peeking out from this this foreground of these yellow lilies and all around his head 
are shades of buckeye in bloom. I think those are buckeye. Yep, are they're Calif- buckeye? Yeah, they're California buckeye. Right. Yep. And then there is, uh, and it sort of looks like it could be dusk. And then there is this gorgeous y- honey yellow moon that looks like the beeswax pattern. And then there are bees all around the bear. And the bear doesn't look scared. <laughs> and he doesn't look worried or sad or mad. He just, he kind of looks um, quizzical, kind of like, what is happening here? And and there's very much a sense of this lush world, very rich world. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I don't want to be making this like the spiritual aspect of it, but there is a little bit of, they're martyrs of our unnatural world. It is kind of a sacred it is sacred and that these normal patterns of plants and animals that we you know we were disrupting them and that maybe their fables are besides are are making them anthropomorphic that that there is something uh beautiful and and about just the natural daily life of them mm-hmm. for instance um there's an open space trail just kind of right at the end of our road that it's kind of uh it's a trail that you can kind of take a shortcut down into town we walk our dog there and my kids um play in there with their friends but we noticed you know every spring there's this owl that comes and he's always you always see him sleeping right above the trail and you know and another neighbor came over was there and, I, and she said well that's the male because the female kicked him out of the nest because she's sitting on she's sitting on the eggs and sure enough <laughs> it's sure enough it's like and then you, you know every every day you go through there and you see this this owl which i'm gonna it's the kicked out dad taking his nap on the branch and you see them every day, and then there, you know, some days you actually. I saw the, the female. I'm guessing, um, and then every year at the end of the summer, the, there's these little northern spotted owlets that come down, and they're curious. And so I'll be with back there with the kids, just kind of walking, and they they fly down and they like land right in front of you, and which blows my mind. And you know, you, you want to be like, oh, it's spiritual. It's like it means something. It's you know, it's it's nature, it's science. It's just you know, it's just the way it is. But you want to give it more meaning than maybe it it is it has. But uh, I I think that's kind of where like it's that's kind of where I'm going. Like there, it's nature is magic. Like <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, because you don't see them every day. So no. and we know that they're under a great deal of pressure and mm-hmm. are struggling. And so to have one be part of your any day, yeah. let alone every day, is um, is powerful. It is powerful. And yeah. Yeah. So my kids yeah. have named that walkway. That's the it's the Spotted Owl Woods now. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. So um, at this point, you you do this full time. You mm-hmm. put together exhibits. Yep. Where where can people like where? So, where do you show your work? Who is your target audience? Where mm-hmm. do people find it? So the the body of work I'm making right now, I'm actually, I've been kind of in this kind of, I call it the art hole. <laughs> I'm just kind of down this whole rabbit hole. I have a solo show in Austin, Texas at a gallery called Wally Workman Gallery. Um, every January and into February uh, in Austin, they have this big event called Print Austin, where a lot of mm. the galleries do um, exhibitions with printmakers. It's really great. And then they do a lot of like print events and talk about, you know, it's education about what printmaking is and all the different forms of printmaking. Um, So I have a solo show there. It is about fables, but not directly. But it is it is about, you know, the kind of, you know, our native plants and animals and then 
and then but let's build narratives around them. And so when you when you do a piece like the bear, that is a while you can replicate those individual etchings, that final composition of the collaged pieces all together, that's a little harder to replicate over and over. Yeah. Or do you take that finished kind of almost sculptural collage piece and do you replicate it in a different form? No, I mean, I I just want to make one. I use the same, I use the same plates to make different different pieces so I'll you'll mm-hmm. see the same flowers in different pieces um, and even so the same and I'll use the same deer over and over and over again in different pieces but I, I like to make new things I just mm-hmm. did, I got asked to do a commission for a hospital in Baton Rouge it was a piece that they had seen but had already sold and so I I did I made a sister piece it wasn't exactly the same I changed the colors I the composition was very similar it was of the great egrets um, piece mm-hmm. that I did mm-hmm. so we call it a sister piece. It wasn't, you know, related, but not the same. So in in essence, each of your pieces is an original work. Yes, it that, is. That is it a is. single edition. Okay. Yeah. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. In this third in our four-part Arttober series, we're speaking with Julia Lucy. We'll be right back. Hey, it's me again. So another thing that Julia touches on, which all of our artists so far have touched on as well, something that so many gardeners and nature lovers know and feel daily is this, magic, the magic of nature, which is some part science, some part spiritual resonance and delight, and maybe even more importantly, the magic of the everyday lives of all living things if we just take the time to see them. The everyday lives of owls, of lilies, of gardeners, of each of us. The everyday magic of the season's flowers and seeds and foliage and scent. Julia's work asks her to slow down. The time and attention to detail required in the many steps force her to slow down and focus and pay close attention. Her art in its finished pieces has detail that asks us as viewers to slow down and look and look again. Notice that? What about that? We as gardeners and nature lovers are, I think, predisposed to pay this kind of attention. But it's also clear in our weekly conversations We too can lose sight of this. We too can get lost in a cultural norm that devalues what we value. And so my encouragement to you this week is this, try to slow down. Try to make even a little bit of your gardening practice just that, a practice. Every bit as important to your well-being as anything on your to-do list. Your gardening and nature-loving practice brings balance and perspective and nutrients at all levels into your life. So that's your homework. Let me know how it goes. I'll do the same. Now back to our conversation with Julia. My joy comes from making the piece. I love the process of making the piece. I think I'm usually happy for about 24 hours after I finish it. And then I, <laughs> and then, and then I start nitpicking it and then I'm like, okay, that means I need to make another one. And so, uh, you know, make it better, do it better. 
but maybe that is what I like. I, I like it's like mm. you see the image, make a little sketch, try to put it together. Does it work? Does it not work? And and you know, yeah, it's labor intensive. I mean, you know, the piece I'm working on now, I've been working on for you know, almost a month. So it's you know, if it doesn't come out right, you know, whatever. I it's you move on and try it again. This is what's hard. It's hard for as people have a hard time putting art and business together. It's like if you yeah. say you're an artist, then you have to say that you're not making your work for money. But it's like, but if I'm not making my work for money, then 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 I can't be an artist because right. I, can't then I can't support make my work. Myself. Right. So then I can't make my work. So I mean, and that's you know, when I first got out of art school, that's I would never think of trying to sell my art. I, I think it's so it's so, it's so poo pooed upon. So I, I have to you know I have to think like a business sometimes too, and I do have to get things done. I have a very strict schedule. I have calendar with every single day kind of laid out on today I'm gonna <laughs> draw California lady slippers which is a challenge I'm also a parent and so I have a lot of those responsibilities too I can't just kind of go in my studio and close the door and pretend the rest of the world doesn't exist so you know yeah I have to drive to soccer practice and, <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> and piano lessons and all that stuff so yes um, yes yeah I also know how lucky I am that I am able to do there's things that I do have a career doing something that is fulfilling to me and that I do get to be a parent and you know have a you know a great family life. And I would imagine that how old are your kids, Julia? Uh they're 8 and 10. For them to see the observation and the time spent in the outdoors observing and then in the indoors and in your head but also on the kitchen table and <laughs> on the computer and in the studio the amount of time you go into manifesting these visions must be a wonderful, magical, adventurous journey for your kids, too. Yeah, it is. And and they give me lots of ideas. I bet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, I'm, actually, I, I'm actually making a piece right now that is a little bit, it kind of is a little astray from, well, in some ways, and in, in the fable way, it's not astray, but it's a little astray from what I've been doing. But in the biggest piece that I think you've been seeing the images of, that there's actually a unicorn hidden in it, <laughs> which is definitely <laughs> not native to California na- in this lifetime right now. Just right. <laughs> so that's it's definitely it's kind of like, how can I justify that? I just did that. <laughs> and it's the 10 year old daughter justifying that. So um, that's yeah. great. That's great. One of my final questions would be, you know, and, and for me, maybe you've already answered this in this sort of observational and artistic relationship you've developed with California and your place in California. But what would you say is the universal importance of work like this that maybe is one of your motivations for continuing to try and get it right? You know, I think there's always the for me, like in, within my process and within the making the work, I just it's kind of the idea of just thinking about how now we're also distracted. Like everything, everything kind of information just kind of seems like it's on the surface these days. Like we kind of will read the headlines, but we won't actually read the articles. Whereas I feel like making highly detailed work, I want people to stop and you know look at look at the details of the work, and then you know what, go for a walk around your neighborhood and look at the details of your neighborhood. Or I'm making I'm contributing to consumption like it's like I definitely as a you know as try to do this for a living I can't say that but but I have to it's I'm making things out of wood and paper that people put in their houses you know it's like it's not a necessary 
thing. It's, uh, you know, something. Okay, so are you going to come to your defense or am I going to come to your defense? Uh, no, yeah. well, I, art is necessary. Okay, art is Thank necessary. You. But but as a, I, but at the same time, I just, you know, I do. I feel like, you know, I... I, I use acrylic paint like it's plastic like I it's like I, right. there's there's environmental issues to everything we do um, including making art and but making art about the environment and thinking about, I mean you have to think about it so but everything is cause causes harm you can't like not cause harm but uh, you know but you need to also take care of do do what makes you happy and 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 it makes other people happy. <laughs> it's the finding the balance in that, and and I think I still, you know, I go back and forth with it, uh, but I can't help it. I I, I need to make things like. It's... Mm-hmm. Okay, so now I want to end with this request. When you think back to all of the people who have purchased your work, commissioned your work, shown your work, maybe it was the hospital that came to you and said, "We really want those egrets." Can you share an anecdote in which somebody expressed to you their happiness or their the way in which they were moved by your artwork that registered for you the kind of response you really wanted? Yes. Um, you know, and it's actually, and I have a, a really, you know, I, I still am in contact with uh, this person, uh, Kelly Duna, uh she uh, saw one of my etchings. This was a few, in, I think, 2013, so five years ago. Um, it was before the bigger work um, of a uh, coyote sitting on top of um, poppies and, and, and purple lupin. And it was just kind of like, you're like, that's Marin County. And, and she and her husband had just bought a ranch. Um, and she bought the piece. And she said, because it just it just was where she it just felt like the ranch like it just it had that same feeling um and it's this coy- it's what's funny is that it's a coyote um he's kind of smirking um and and they raise sheep <laughs> and so i just thought it was you know it's just kind of a funny juxtaposition of that they they named their the name of the piece was spring coyote um and they named their ranch spring coyote ranch um af- after the piece um and you know and actually go check them out they're great but i i you know i just think it's fun but i think it also represents are that you can be a rancher and a farmer and you can be environmentally responsible and you can think about the things you're growing and what are your what you're feeding your 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 sheep and and your livestock and that predators are not um that there are good ways to deal with that that there are appropriate ways to deal with foxes and coyotes and mountain lions and bobcats, um, you know, that aren't going to hurt your bottom line. That there are responsible ways. You know, I think of Project Coyote. They go out and the nonprofit. They go out and educate ranchers about fox lights, like the lights that come on, um, guard llamas, um, dogs. You know, that you don't have to kill predators because all that does is upset, uh, you know, ecological systems, the local ecological systems. So I just like that 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 they're they're using a coyote that you think of as the, the rancher's nightmare. Um, as a symbol for their, 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 their farm and their ranch and their brand. And even that they asked me afterwards, they commissioned me, they on their egg carton, they wanted me to redo the coyote, but have him licking his chops. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's a coyote with his tongue over his nose, which is just, you know, so, but yeah. But they also, I mean, on top of that, I think they were kind of in this transition space where, where my husband and I, we were having this discussion, like, do I need to go back? I, not that I did not love teaching. I did love teaching. But do I need to go back to teaching? Are we kind of in this situation where maybe making art is not 
um, sustainable for our family as much as I love it. And so they kind of, I mean, I think they found me at the right time because it kind of was like, okay, I can keep doing this. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. It made me really think about what I'm doing. Because <laughs> sometimes it's just, uh, I just enjoy doing this. And, and I just want to make, you know, I just want to make these little landscapes. And, and, but there is, there is a reason behind it. There is a motivation. Julia Lucy's aquatint etching collage compositions create layered ecosystems and narrative scenes paying homage to native flora and fauna, predominantly of the West. Julia has focused on traditional etching techniques and aquatint to create images speaking to evolving issues of wildlife and wild landscapes. She exhibits her work throughout the United States. Join us again next week as we continue our conversations with artists inspired by the botanical world when we head east and speak with artist Ann Wood of Woodlucker Studio in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Until next week, Enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.